The party's over. The evening of joy is giving way to the night of darkness and agony. The bond of unity and peace around the table has been shattered by the revelation of the betrayer in the midst and one more failure of the disciples as they squabble amongst each other in pride. The dialogue in our text tonight is the final conversation that Luke records between Jesus and the apostles prior to his crucifixion. In many ways, this is Jesus' farewell address as he prepares them for what's coming in just a few short hours. He spent three years or more with these men, day and night, teaching, healing, ministering to and with them, and and their time together in, in this public ministry has come to an end. So this final conversation is driven by his love for them. In his gospel, John records much more of Jesus' words in the upper room on this night. And and, and that evangelist, he begins this section with a beautiful statement about Christ. He writes in John 13, 1, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so here, in this farewell discourse... Because of his love, the Lord reveals the spiritual battle that's taking place in the shadows and the failures that lie ahead of the disciples. And he reminds them of his care for them and his ultimate mission. And then he revises their commission in light of his impending suffering. And I'll be honest, preparing for this message has been particularly difficult for me as I've wrestled with what it is that the Lord would have us see in this text and pull out of it tonight. As I read and reread and re-reread the text, these two brief dialogues we have in front of us, it seemed to me that, that one word binds together everything that takes place. And it's that very last word of the passage. Enough. The final idea that Jesus wants to leave with those that he loves is that he is enough. So our outline, which you'll find in the back of the bulletin, is a good Calvinist outline, five points. It goes like this. Jesus' prayers are enough. Jesus' people are enough. Jesus' proclamation is enough. Jesus' provision is enough. And Jesus' protection is enough. Kids, you'll find the words to listen for as you follow along in the usual place. They are disciples, Simon or Peter. Word, world, people, enough, and Jesus. So first, Jesus' prayers are enough. Jesus turns from speaking to the twelve, as we saw last week, and he singles out Simon Peter. And he repeats his name, Simon, Simon. This repetition of, of the name is an expression both of his deep love and his sorrow. He'd used this address a couple couple times earlier in Luke. He addressed Martha in chapter 10. Martha, Martha. He'd used it when he lamented over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And in those, it was important and it was driven by his love and his compassion for his friend and disciple. And what does he say? 
He lets him know Judas was not Satan's only target. In fact, the ancient serpent continues to war against the woman's seed to the end. And here he's making a legal claim on all 12 of the disciples. Now, in proper modern English, we don't have a way to differentiate between the singular and the plural of the second person pronoun. But we are in the South, so we do have such a term. What do we say when we speak to a group of people? Y'all. Very good. So the yous in verse 31 are both plural. They're speaking of all the disciples. While in verse 32, the pronouns are all singular, referring specifically to Simon Peter. So in the Aaron Reigns standard translation, it would read something like this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have y'all, that he might sift y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So Satan is is going after these eleven. And what was his purpose? It was to shake them down, to test them, to put them through the ringer and prove their weakness. In his commentary, Daryl Bach says, a good parallel to this idea is picking someone to pieces. And this description Jesus gives, it should put us in mind of the story of Job. When Satan requested, and he was given permission, to put that faithful servant of God to the test. But notice, both in Job and here for the disciples, the enemy has to ask for permission to go after God's people. He's the accuser of the brethren, but he has no right to do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. As Luther famously said, He's the devil, but he's God's devil. He's not an equal evil force to God's goodness, but he is subordinate to the creator and to his power and his will. But this is still bad news for these 11 disciples. Judas was allowed to hand himself over completely to the devil. So what's the difference for the rest of them? How will they be protected? The answer is, they have an advocate greater than Satan who has prayed for them. Jesus himself. Jesus tells Simon, Satan has prayed for permission to sift y'all, but I have prayed for you so that you can minister to the others and so that all 11 of you will be delivered from evil. Jesus prayed for his disciples and he continues to pray for them today. In fact, Christian, he has prayed and is praying for you. In his gospel, John records a prayer that Jesus prayed that night in that upper room. And it's found in John 17. Here's part of his request. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus prayed for the apostles, but also for all his people. And he continues to pray for us today. Paul writes in Romans 8 that Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
So who does Jesus pray for? Not everyone, but specifically for those who place their trust in him. He didn't pray for Judas. He didn't pray for all the world, but for those he was given. He didn't pray for those who are about to stand in judgment over him, but for his closest friends, even the ones who in fear would abandon him. He prays for his bride, the church. And what does he pray for? He prays for all of his people, for all time, that they would be kept, guarded, sanctified, preserved, strengthened in love, given knowledge, and unified with his Father and with each other. He prays that even though Simon Peter would go through trials and through temptation, he would not ultimately lose his faith, and that he would then turn and strengthen the others. But also notice, he doesn't pray for the disciple to avoid the trial. Jesus prays not for the absence of trouble, but for endurance in and growth out of trouble. He prays that all who come to him in faith would be forgiven through his shed blood, and that we would be made holy, and that we would persevere through tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword, that we would be more than conquerors because of his love. And why does he pray? Well, he prays because the enemy is real. And his power, the enemy's power to tempt and then to condemn is strong. He prays because we are weak and sinful and frail. If Simon could lose his faith, he would. If you could lose your faith, you would. The only reason anyone remains faithful to the end is because Jesus knows our need of salvation, of encouragement, of strength to endure, of assurance of his love, and he prays for us. And why are his prayers enough? Because all of us, all of us have had prayers that we've lifted up and they haven't been answered or they've been answered no. So how can we be sure that Jesus' prayers will be answered for us? And it's because he submitted himself to his Father's will. In the very next passage that Lord willing we'll hear next week, we'll see him praying that the cup of God's judgment would pass, but he was willing to receive the answer no, so that we might be saved from our sin. And because he was an obedient son, even suffering to the point of death, he became the source of our eternal salvation and a great high priest forever, interceding for his people. So the no that he was willing to receive to his own request has earned the yes that he will always receive to his request on our behalf. He prayed for Simon Peter that his faith would not disappear. And though his disciple was weak and faltered, Jesus' prayer for him was granted. And brothers and sisters, he prays the same for you. Michael Wilcock sums up uh, this passage in this way. Listen, says Jesus to his apostles. It was not only Judas that Satan wanted. He demanded to have you all. Judas I have abandoned to him. But for the rest of you, 
Although Simon is going to deny me, yet I can restore even one who sinks as low as that, and through him I shall restore all of you. So much for Satan's power, he has met his match. When the Son prays to the Father, a power is released which checks all Satan's demands. So because Jesus' prayers are enough, do not give up in trials. You may be exhausted by what feels like the onslaught of the devil. You may be battered over and over and over again by the same temptation. You may feel that you cannot possibly go any further. You, you may be afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, or struck down. You may feel that your faith will fail, but Christ will hold you fast. Christian, do not give up praying because Jesus is continually interceding for you and his prayers will be answered. Jesus' prayers are enough. Second, we see that Jesus' people are enough. Notice Jesus' purpose in preserving Simon. It's not only for his own good, but it's also for the good of all the others. When he has come out of his stupor and he's back on solid ground, he is to strengthen the brothers. Throughout their time with Jesus, these men had seen the opposition to the Lord continually escalate. And some had left their homes, some their jobs, some even their own families had turned their back on them as they decided to follow Jesus. And the road that lay ahead would cost them even more. But remember the promise Jesus had given those who counted the cost of discipleship back in chapter 18. He said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. As the Lord is taken from them and the pressures increase on these disciples and they will be excluded from so many facets of society and they're kicked out of the temple and the synagogues, where will these disciples turn? They must turn to one another. For those of us that have been here throughout the study of Luke, we may be forgiven for being a little skeptical at this point. This group, the ones who five seconds ago were arguing for the umpteenth time about which one of them was the best, and Peter, Peter's the one to strengthen them, the one who is about to argue with Jesus that he could never betray his master and then will go on to do that very thing. How could this be the plan? How could these people be enough? The answer is, they're not. Not in themselves. Jesus' people are enough only because they are Jesus' people. And he makes them enough. One marvelous wonder of the gospel is that the Lord rejoices to use weak jars of clay to carry the glorious message of his kingdom. So Simon's impending denial of Christ will not ultimately make him useless to the other disciples. As one commentator put it, the whole experience, far from disqualifying Peter from Christian service, would actually issue in a responsibility for him to strengthen the brothers. And when we see 
that the church is full of those who fail. We don't have the luxury to use the excuse, the church is full of hypocrites in order to abandon our place among God's people. The church of Jesus is the only place that God has provided for us to become what he has called us to be. As Paul writes in Ephesians 4, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried, out, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's only among the people of God that you will find all the gifts his spirit gives to conform you to the image of his son. That's why we must consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And if you think you have nothing to give, if you think your sin excludes you from contributing to the life of the church, if you think the difficulties of your life exclude you from participating with his people, consider Peter's example. First, notice the grace of the Lord Jesus. As one early church father put it, Oh, what great and incomparable kindness. The affliction of faithlessness had not yet made the disciple ill, and already he has received the medicine of forgiveness. The grace of the Lord Jesus is even running ahead of our yet future sins ensuring our place among his people. So don't despair of your sin, even denying him. Jesus forgives Peter even before the apostle abandons him at the time of his greatest need. He can forgive your sin. If you've never trusted in him and received his forgiveness, today is the day of salvation, while it is still called today. You may By placing your faith in him, receive that salvation and be included among his people. You have a place here. Because as one commentator says, the church does not consist of innocent, but of guilty people who have been forgiven. And even its leaders will inherit their leadership with dirty hands that have been washed. And then, as we consider the restoration of Peter... Think of the encouragement that he had to offer those who struggle with sin, those who suffer. As Leon Morris states, he who has been through deep waters has the experience that enables him to be of help to others. Those who have experienced restoration, repentance, and growth, they have a special ministry, a responsibility to encourage and to strengthen the weak brothers around them. And Peter did this. In fact, Peter, who was proud but knew the loving care of his Savior, wrote this to a church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And Peter, who knew what it was like to be sifted by Satan, then goes on to write this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then Peter, who was restored by Christ, knows that the only way to be strengthened is to be pointed back to him. So he concludes that letter by writing, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You will only get this kind of encouragement and teaching among the body of Christ. Jesus wanted his disciples, and he wants us to understand that his people are enough to serve and encourage and minister to one another until we reach our eternal home with him. Next we see, Jesus' proclamation is enough. Luke has framed Jesus' public ministry as centered around his preaching. His ministry commenced with his teaching in the synagogues. We saw him back in chapter 4 in Nazareth open the Isaiah scroll and proclaim that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy there of the anointed one, proclaiming good news, liberty, and the year of the Lord's favor. Among the things that he says he must do in Luke is preach the gospel of the kingdom. He is taught with authority that's unparalleled by anyone. He has exposed people's hearts. He's worked miracles that confirm his message. And he's demonstrated authority over both the material and the spiritual realms. So the disciples should be prepared to take him at his word and accept his proclamation as sufficient. And yet, look how Peter responds to Jesus' message that it had been granted to Satan to test Peter. He self-confidently announces that Jesus must be mistaken about his weakness. Look at verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And there, there seems to be a little bit of irony in Jesus' turn. He was referring to him as Simon, and now he's calling him Peter, Peter the Rock. It's as if he's saying, oh, you're going to stand that firm, Rocky? You'll disavow me three times by dawn. And, spoiler alert, Jesus will be proven correct yet again. Through Jesus' proclamation here, he's exposing Peter's heart. And Peter's response was the wrong one. As the church father Cyril describes it, he says, When the Savior told Peter that he would be weak and contradict the Lord, he should not have loudly protested the contrary. The truth could not lie. Peter should have rather asked strength from Christ, either that he might not suffer this or that he might be rescued immediately from harm. 
But how about you? When Scripture is opened and the double-edged sword lays your sin and weakness bare before the one from whom no creature is hidden, how do you respond? When you hear, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, do you protest? Surely not me. When you see others fall, do you think, no way would that be me? We would do well to heed this warning from William Barclay. If someone says, that is the one thing I will never do, that is often the very thing against which he or she must most carefully guard. Satan is subtle. He attacks the points at which we are too sure of ourselves. For there we are most likely to be unprepared. Christ's word tells us that we are weaker and far more sinful than we know. We are self-deceived fools if we tell ourselves that we are without sin or that we have our pet sin under control. We can keep it hidden on life support rather than exposing it and killing it. Or if we disagree and we say that that thing that God says he hates isn't actually rebellion against God. Christ's word is enough to show us our sin and our need of him. And unlike Peter, when we hear it, we should heed it and flee to him for refuge. Because Christ's proclamation is also enough to bring the healing salve to wounded sinners whose sin has been exposed. He's already given Peter the promise of forgiveness and restoration in verse 32. And then in verse 37, the Lord once again reminds his disciples of the true purpose of his mission when he says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. This gospel then becomes the core message of the church. The disciples take this and carry it out into the world. And it leads Paul to tell the Corinthians that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom in his ministry to them. But In fact, Paul says he decided to know nothing else in his ministry to them but Jesus Christ and him crucified. When the law of God has done its work and it's shown us our sin, The only answer is found in Jesus. We must preach him. Because when we do, his Holy Spirit works. And that proclamation is sufficient. And his word is sufficient to bring about his purposes. The mission of the church is to carry that word into all the world. Making disciples through the means that he's given us. Through the word made visible in baptism. And then through teaching all that he has commanded. So we don't need gimmicks or social transformation programs or political movements or hyped up events to fulfill our mission. We only need Jesus proclaimed through his word read, sung, prayed, and preached in public worship. And Jesus' death Proclaimed until he comes as we partake of the supper together. And Jesus proclaimed to one another 
as we fellowship and spur each other on to love and good works. And Jesus proclaimed in our communities as we give a reason for the hope that is within us. And Jesus proclaimed as his love is put on display as we love one another and serve our neighbors. The word of Christ is sufficient for the work of Christ's church. And Christ's church. So don't be like Peter and deny the word of Christ. When you hear him say you have sinned against him in your thoughts and words and deeds, humble yourself. Confess the sins that you know and repent, trusting in Christ who is sufficient to save you. When you hear the assurance that he has forgiven all your sins through his shed blood, rest in that promise and do not carry your shame any longer. When he calls you to new obedience, pursue it joyfully as an act of gratitude for all that he has done, not as a way of trying to earn his favor. And when opportunity presents itself, give others that same proclamation that saved you. Christ and him crucified, the power of God. Jesus' proclamation is enough. But his proclamation is enough only because Jesus' provision is enough. After this short exchange with Peter, Jesus turns to the whole group. And he reminds them of their mission that took place back in chapter 10. But look at our text here in verse 35. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He had commissioned them to a specific task and given them specific directions to trust in his plan to meet their needs, and as a result, they did not lack a single thing. And then he reinforced this reality in chapter 12, where he told his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that... Why are you anxious about the rest? Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For then all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And more than ever, as Jesus goes to the cross, that promise, that reminder of provision, would be vital for the disciples. Jesus ensured that they had everything they needed to do what he called them to. And that is true of us as well. When you're battling that temptation for the thousandth time, you have what you need to resist it and escape it. When you are seeking a deeper understanding of God's word, he's provided all you need to learn. When you're faced with suffering and bitter providence... He's provided all you need to endure. And when you lack something that you think you need, you can boldly go to the Father and ask for it based on his promised care for you. And if he doesn't grant it to you, then you can know it is not something you need. Because God is not a liar. And he has promised to care for you, Christian. 
But deeper and more important than all this is the provision Jesus makes to cover our sins. As he says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Ultimately, the true mission of Jesus was not just to teach or to perform miracles. It was not to defeat Rome and establish a new political order. It was to die a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners as the plan had been all along. Because the deepest need each disciple and each of us and each person in the world has is salvation from sin and reconciliation to God. And Jesus' provision of salvation is enough. There is nothing to be added to the finished work of Christ. And was reckoned among transgressors. Christ was subjected to the condemnation which we deserved and was reckoned among transgressors that we who are transgressors and loaded with crimes might be presented by him to the Father as righteous. For we are reckoned pure and free from sins before God because the Lamb who was pure and free from every blemish was placed in our stead. God in his mercy has given everything to save us. So as we consider Christ crucified, we can say with Paul, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Our God is a generous God and a loving Father. So look to Jesus and cast your anxieties on him and trust his provision because it is enough. And finally we see Jesus' protection is enough. And the last bit of this passage may be a little confounding on its face. Jesus seems to reverse his earlier direction as he says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, that's enough. We may say, why this change? After such an emphasis all along about not caring about material things and a focus on a spiritual kingdom, it seems like Jesus is flipping everything on its head. And that's certainly what the disciples think as they respond to Jesus by holding out their swords. They're ready to go to battle. But sadly, once again, the disciples have misunderstood Jesus' point. Leon Morris writes this, Jesus' response, it is enough, means not two will be sufficient, but rather enough of this kind of talk. He dismisses a subject in which the disciples were so hopelessly astray. I mean, think about it. Two short swords is hardly enough to defend 12 grown men. And when one of them does try to use one of the swords, Jesus rebukes him for it. So the point Jesus is making here is figurative. R.C. Sproul explains it this way. Jesus is warning them that everything is about to change. Whereas they were once welcomed because of him everywhere they went, all that has changed. 
The world is about to turn on them in hatred because of him. For most of their time with Jesus, and certainly for the of the crowds they had entered Jerusalem, they had experienced safety because of the crowd's love of Jesus. But the next time he stands in front of a crowd, they will be demanding his death. They will face the same opposition that he faced, and they must be prepared. As one commentator says, Jesus' farewell discourse concludes with a warning of future tension between Jesus' successors and society. Yet, they are not without hope. Their king is able to protect them even in the midst of persecution. He's already guaranteed Peter's protection from Satan through his prayers. And he's provided strength for the rest through his charge to Peter. And he had prepared them all along the way for this day. At least three times he had explicitly predicted his death. And in chapter 12 he had warned them of coming persecution. When he said, I tell you my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Their eternal state was secure. And so they would be protected through the ordeals they would experience because they belonged to Jesus. But he doesn't want them to be naive or caught off guard, and so he warns them. Everything's changing. Be prepared for the suffering to come. And the application for us is probably pretty clear. We should have no expectation of an easy life because we belong to Jesus. We should actually expect this world to hate us because it hated him. Therefore, we should not capitulate to the world. We shouldn't compromise with cultural pressures. And we shouldn't cower in fear. Nor are we to take up the sword in self-defense when we are called to suffer for Christ. Instead, we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. The kingdom does not advance through the sword, but through the gospel preached and adorned with good works. So the call to those who belong to Jesus is to stand our ground side by side, boldly proclaiming the gospel, knowing that persecution may come, but firmly trusting in Jesus' sufficient protection, just like Paul when he wrote this to Timothy. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, if we deny him, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. So Jesus closes this final conversation on a low note of rebuke. He said all he could to prepare his disciples. It was time for him to go fulfill the scriptures and redeem his bride. These reminders that he gave them 
are the same reminders that we need every day. Christ Church, Jesus' prayers are enough. Jesus' people are enough. Jesus' proclamation is enough. Jesus' provision is enough. And Jesus' protection is enough. He offers himself to you through his word. And shortly he will offer himself to you at this table. See his sufficiency. Come to him and rest. The Lord Jesus Christ is enough. So may we trust him and rest in him. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are overwhelmed with our gratefulness for your love for sinners in calling them to yourself and that we would be numbered among them, that I would be numbered among them as far above my comprehension. So we give you all the glory and all the praise. By your spirit, drive home these truths, tear us away from our idols that we pursue, and instead give us firm foundation on the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.